My first night with you, we considered Psalm 23. And as I, when I chose the Psalms, I, I chose what I thought were heart places, human places of need, interest, desire, something that's deep within us. And in the 23rd Psalm, I looked at, briefly, mind you, but comfort. Because contrasted to comfort is the fear. And what brings us comfort is the rod and the staff of God, and it's just his left hand and his right hand, and his providences around us. That's in the middle, and built around that is the great themes of salvation and sacrifice and provision. Last week, we looked at another psalm of David. And I chose David so that the themes, I mean, you're going to hear, you're going to hear a little theme, a little drift of idea from 23 in, in this Psalm 139. You're, here's something of the imagery of, of 51 in this 139 because it's the, it's the same author under inspiration of God and guided by the Spirit to inscripturate, but using the vessel and the needs of his life. And last week, we looked at the idea of renew and restore and how, you know, we just, we find trouble, we run into trouble. David identified himself. I want you to remember this because we'll, we'll come back. He identified himself as a transgressor. He, is, he was iniquitous. He had sinned. He had done evil. But he was wanting that place where he would be renewed. And we want renewal. Some of us want, just let my life go. Let let me draw the blinds on yesterday. Let me forget last week. Let me get away from last year. Just, and we want that renewal. And the business of God is to create and to renew. And in that psalm, we had that inexorable march, that Psalm 51, the inexorable march of the names of God. Seven times God is named, given a name, and it's Elohim and Elohim and Elohim. Six times, the creator judge, to finally at the end, it's Yahweh, the one who stoops and does things for man. Tonight, it's Psalm 139, and... Boy, we are getting into some heady stuff here. And I, I realized they didn't plan this, but Psalm 23 is this big, and Psalm 51 is this big, and Psalm 139 is this big. And so we'll try to capture the essence. And we'll look at a bit of the poetic stuff and then run through the what I believe is the, the message, the essence. And let me read. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways, even before there's a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, You know it all. You have enclosed me behind 
and before and laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I, I, I cannot attain to it. Where could I go from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. and Your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me. Surely the darkness will overwhelm me. And the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For, for, you formed me. And you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me, excuse me, try me. And know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. A couple of stories real quick. Uh, College football last Saturday. Michigan, Michigan State. Ten seconds left in the game. Michigan's ahead. They're in the big house. They're on about their own 30. Punter receives the ball to kick it. They win. Kick it. Or just drop it and sit on it. They win. But he fumbles the ball and in his efforts tries to pick it up. And in trying to pick it up gets hit. And he whacks the ball and it flies off to the side. And here comes a big Michigan State guy. Whoa, look at this. The football. To the end zone. Game over. Michigan State wins. Michigan loses. And then the torrent. The unbelievable 
backlash on the internet and on Twitter and whatever about this punter. And, and it was awful. Even the athletic uh, president of the athletic department, president of the school for, in Ann Arbor, come on, everybody, lay off. It was a football game. And one little thing that the, this young boy said, they don't know me. How could they say those kinds of things? They don't know me. Another story, I read it today. A man dead for a year in his home. Dead. At least a year. No family, nobody, no cross this, that, and the other thing. Finally, a neighbor said to the police, let's, let's go in and check. And they go in and check. There's dead on the floor. And they could tell that he'd been dead at least a year. And it was said no one, no one really knew him. <laughs> oh, that's awful. This psalm is classified in a number of different ways. It's an individual psalm. That is, it's David. David wrote it about David, about his experiences. It's not a communal. It's not a we and all of us will come. It's David. That's the same with Psalm 23, same with Psalm 51. This is an individual psalm. It's also known as a wisdom psalm because it contains teachings. And some of the teaching in this is spectacular. And it's also listed among or included with what are called imprecatory psalms. Somebody railing imprecations against somebody. Kill them. Get them. Destroy them. Those are imprecations. And they make us uncomfortable a little bit. This is pretty gentle. There are some others that are a lot more uh, offensive. But... Or at least we, at first read, we take offense. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm calling for, invoking and praying for the defeat and the destruction or the overflow of the wicked. And, and that's what David does. But it also begins, the psalm begins and ends with the idea of being searched and known. God. The Hound of Heaven, famous poem by Francis Thompson. Anyone familiar with that? This is the psalm it's based on. The theme of flight and pursuit, especially from verses 7 to 14. It's a psalm contending with some theology but in a deeply personal way, in an amazing way. And this is a man, David, who has thought about the truths that he's known and let that percolate and seep into his mind and stop the tapes and stop the madness and maybe even close his eyes so that he doesn't even see what's going on. Those visual cues that take, us, take over for us so often so that he can think about God. And in that process, he has composed for the choir director 
Imagine somebody writes something like this. Now remember, we're reading it in English, and it's really kind of wonderful, and the translators have done a marvelous job. I read from the New American Standard. You, most of you may have the English Standard. I know the King James in this is just great. It's flowery. It's elegant. It's transcendent. Zach, you want somebody bringing this and shoving it under your door and say, put to music for Sunday. <laughs> That's how they did. And David would have brought this to the choir director so that they could sing it. And they would sing it so that they could learn it more quickly. And that it would come to mind. Anybody here have a... You know, your song, your favorite song, your place, this something that reminds you, uh, you learned it as a little child maybe in Sunday school, then I, I want to limit this to the, you know, the Bible stuff. I told you last week, singing in a choir, creating me a clean heart, oh God. Right. That's the easiest memorization I ever did, singing. It sounds good. Most of the time. This psalm, verses 7 to 12 especially, have been called uh, the high point of Hebrew literature and that it is one of the summits of Old Testament poetry. It has been referred to as the locus classicus, that is the principal source of reference for the doctrine of the omniscience of God. I mean, what does the Bible teach? And we can go through and capture most of those themes. It teaches its own self-inscripturation, the importance of the Word of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses and commanded him to write. And then it reveals who God is. And then it is, the Bible reveals who man is. And the Bible reveals who Christ is. And the Bible also reveals the work that Christ has done. And all of those themes, it's not like... You're reading the first section about the Word and the next section about God and the next... It's all woven back and forth intricately, sometimes propositionally, sometimes poetically, sometimes by imagery, all of it wonderfully woven together. And this is just an incredible psalm that captures the omniscience of God. And it's an individual who's gripped by the nature of the Almighty against his feeble frame, have you ever had somebody tell you, I can read you like a book? It's usually not a good thing. <laughs> Something's gone on and someone else is reducing you, your motives, your actions, to some predictable pattern of which they disapprove and they're nipping it in the bud. I can read you like a book. I know what you're trying to do. How about right now, if I could just stop everything, freeze time, penetrate into your minds, pull out thoughts. Let me just get 30 minutes. Let me get three hours. Let me get three days of every thought that you've processed. Would you want that done? 
No, I'm, I'm on a much shorter clock than most people, too. Uh, I'm, in, I'm down in the three-minute range. I have to erase and start over. But this is going against that. This first section, verses 1 to 6, God's omniscience, that he knows all things. It says, he has known me, he knows me, he understands me, he's intimately acquainted. He knows it all. He searched. That means he dug into me. It's a mining term. He went digging and scratching and he searched. He scrutinized, that is, he's sifting or winnowing. And then he encloses his, hand, his hands bef- behind me and before me, and then his hand is upon me. And my actions, my words, and my thoughts. He knows them. This word know. In Scripture, most of the time, it's not just the idea of accumulating knowledge. It's, it's, the old te- it's more the Old Testament. And it, the word is it's an interesting word. Because we use it in English in a way that kind of suggests uh, I can read you like a book. Like somebody's talking and you cut them off and you go, yada, yada, yada. Well, that's the word, yada, to know. But in Old Testament literature and then especially in poetic literature, to know is far more intimate. It's embraced knowledge. It is close knowledge, and in fact, it's the word used when the Old Testament would say, and -and so-and-so went into his wife and knew her. That's how intimate it is. You've searched me and you've known me. My actions and my thoughts. And in verse 6, it says, such knowledge is too wonderful. You can't read my mind. And I I would just think it would be awful if you could. And yet, the psalmist is talking about God and going, "That's, that's too wonderful. It's too high. I can't, I can't attain the idea of what that means. And then he slips into that next section. I mean, you know me, you search me, you dig me, you winnow me, you, you're before me and behind me and you're on top of me. It just blows my mind. I mean, where can I go? Even if I wanted to get away, how do I get away? So he asks those two rhetorical questions. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Now, he just slipped something in there. Where can I go from, didn't say you, where can I go from the Lord, speaking of him in second or third person, he says, where can I go from your spirit? So included in this is also a doctrine that is a Christian doctrine that just kind of shows up on the pages. The person of God in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And here we have the Spirit. He says, can I go to heaven or hell? Can't get there. No, you're you're already there. How about the dawn and the sea? Oh, that's just such beautiful language here. The wings of the dawn. Uh, In Micah, uh, 
yeah, Micah, there's a, a, a phrase where it talks about the, uh, the rays of the sun and the swiftness by which they shoot at, when they rise up in the morning. That's kind of the idea. But literally, it is, I think, the east, which is where the sun rises, and then the west, where the, where the sea is in, the, in ancient Israel. So he's really going, no matter how far away to the east I can get, no matter how far away to the west I can go, you're already there. You're still there. And then he gets into this metaphysical place about darkness and light. If I say darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, well, even the darkness isn't dark for you and the night is bright as day and darkness and light are alike to you. That God's not limited by the concept of darkness. And in the Hebrew mind, this is how it works. Daytime, you work. Nighttime, you sleep. So this is another way of saying God never sleeps. Even if I'm fleeing, you're leading me. If I'm at the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand is leading me. If I'm on the run from you, you're still leading me. I haven't escaped you. I haven't gotten away from you. It's not like your, your inexorable presence still hangs around. There's an active participation. Even in our fleeing from God, he's leading the fleeing. And without doubt, darkness and light, those images, in the beginning, there was nothing and it was, the world was dark and formless and void and God said, let there be light. Darkness was chaos and light was part of the creative order. And here in this uh, poetry, uh, David is saying, even if the darkness overwhelms me, if it consumes me, if, I'm, if I lapse into chaos... You're still leading me. Then we get to the verse 13 with that big four. And that links those two previous paragraphs to what comes now. Four. In his omnipotence, uh, he can do all things. And now it's not until a little bit later, but the name of God becomes, we get back to Elohim, the creator God. So we're building up to this. But this four, referring to the uh, creative power of God. Now David did not possess the scientific knowledge that we have. But um, just look at how much he captures of the the magnificence of birth, uh, formed, woven, knit, fearfully, wonderfully made, a frame hidden, but not in secret. You've seen my unformed substance. He was not aware of, but he is overwhelmed with the magnificence and the idea that he was created by the knowledge of God, not birthed, and there you are visibly but already written in the book of God all of his days before there was even a day. 
how finely is a person woven together. And then gifted and set apart. And for David, the very concept of his life, his identity is that I was created by God. And in the middle of that, he then exclaims, wonderful are your works. Something, or before or earlier, was too wonderful. Now it's, he's getting a grasp of how wonderful it is. He's got something tangible. He's got his physical world, his created world. Now he's capturing the idea. Oh yeah, it is wonderful. It's amazing. I get it. My soul knows it very well. And then that just little... Chapter, uh, verse 17 and 18. Now, a lot of commentators divide this psalm into four equal parts of six. I don't. I go the first two, and then the next one is uh, four verses, and then this little interlude, 17 and 18, and then the next is 19 to 22, and then 23, 24 is different. They, they, they just they have a different message, a different purpose. But he just talks about the love and the faithfulness of God. And I think these are some of the most wonderful verses in all of Scripture. This is David. He says, Your thoughts to me, O Elohim, are precious. And how vast is the sum of them. I'm not a, I'm not a passing fancy. I'm not a, a fleeting thought. I'm not an intrusion into your mind. I'm not that little child that runs into the front room. Mommy, mommy, mommy. Not now. I don't have time. Dad, dad, will you help me? Uh, listen later. No, the vastness of God's thoughts for you are eternal, constant, chronic. He's a chronic lover of his children. And they hint at, if I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. Here's the hint. When I awake, who said anything about sleeping? Awake from what? Here's, this is the hint. This is, this is the this glimmer. But this is the hint of the resurrection. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Though I would sleep, though I would slumber and reside in Sheol, I would be raised up and resurrected and I will be with you because your thoughts for me are wonderful. And then he launches into this tirade against the wicked. And this, we're, we're going to tie all this together. David elsewhere, 51, called himself, he calls himself the transgressor. He calls himself iniquitous. He calls himself sinful, even evil. But nowhere does he call himself wicked. The wicked speak against God. They are enemies of God. They take his name in vain and they rise up of God. And David is saying, you know me to the bone and I'm not that. I'm, I may fail you. I may disappoint you. I may rebel against you. I may come, ag come against you or break your laws and, your sin and be a sinful creature, be iniquitous, be bent, but I am not wicked. 
is I love you too. You know me in lots of ways. But I'm not wicked. And then we get that final prayer. Search. Now the first, the first six verses, all those well, five, uh, yeah, five verses, all those verbs are in what's called a historic present. It's already been done and it keeps going. Then he switches to the imperatives. Do it. Search me. Do it. Know my heart. Do it. Try me. Do it. Know my anxious thoughts. Do it. See if there's any harmful way in me. Do it. Lead me into the everlasting way. Do it. God, don't stop your work. The number of times this psalm mentions leading, it's just beautiful. Lord, keep leading. Keep leading high and low, hard and easy, difficult, challenging, whatever it is, lead me. Lead me on. Lead me into the everlasting way. Lead me into eternity. Lead me into the dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. From 23. Or the eternal sacrifice given in 51. And create, resurrect me. As we've seen here, I will awaken and be with you. Here's, here's this psalm in short. I've kind of condensed it. You have known me. I can't run or hide from that. But in fact, you formed me and created me this way. And you saw what was unseen. But you have thoughts about me that are precious and vast. And when I rise again, I'll be with you. The wicked... I'm not one of them. They speak against you. They rise up against you. But search me and know me and lead me so that I would never come close to being wicked. Know me. Know me. Regardless of how much we hide from one another, remember that's, that's a condition of creation. I was afraid. I'm exposed, so I hid. And even though we are, <laughs> we are amazingly sophisticated and complicated and accomplished at hiding, just ask husbands and wives, 10, 15, 20 years into the marriage, well, I didn't know that. <laughs> we hide. And yet, you know, one of the fundamental needs and desires of our lives and hearts, something that is so deep, we, we don't think about it, we feel about it. So I want to be known. I want somebody to know me. I want somebody to know and care. This sense of knowledge of what we want people, and ultimately we want God, is not to be read like a book, but to be in the book. And that knowledge is comprised of very few things. But they are tender and they are powerful and they are us. And this psalm calls us to that reality and above that reality because we want genuineness. We want someone who will be truthful to us and tell us the truth and speak truth. Not be selfish, not be using us, not be manipulating us, not getting their own way. Somebody who will deal with me faithfully. We want genuineness.
Secondly, we want empathy. We want someone to care. We want someone to know who we are and still be invested in caring about who we are. Verse 2, you understand me. You get me. You know me. Thirdly, we want respect. We want to be valuable to somebody. I want to matter. I want to, I want to have an impact. I want to have a footprint in my human experience with others, but certainly in my, my human experience with wanting to know God, I want to have impact. I want to feel like he wants me for a good reason, and he's equipped me and enabled me and empowered me and leads me so that I have some impact. How precious are your thoughts to me, and how vast is the sum of them. Lead me in the everlasting way. And last, we want someone to be truthful. We want someone to care. We want respect. We want value. But more than deepest thing that we want. We want to belong. We want to belong. And this song resonates, exhibits, just oozes the idea of ownership. You know me. You made me. You take me. You never leave me. You've got me. I'm yours. I belong. The deepest cravings of our soul can only be found in what our soul needs. I know our soul needs to awaken. Our soul needs to know that the Word of God and the Spirit of God will bring us restoration. We need to know that even though we fumble and foible our way through life and there, we have periods of dryness and darkness, even, even David says, if the darkness overwhelms me, you're still there. And we have darkness in our lives, but God will make it light. He will bring the light to us, even as he is the light. And he keeps us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. Jesus said, I am the light. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the Father has given you to me. This is a psalm of comfort. It's a corrector. It's a, let's get it into our minds. Let's have this. These words, these concepts, these ideas infect us and take over. Let it grow. Let it have fruit. Let it define who we are. Search me and know me and lead me in the everlasting way.